Welcome to Holistic Sex Ed Radio, where we are changing the way parents talk to their kids about sex, relationships, and how to stay safe in our rapidly changing world. You are your kid's best source of information and primary example. In these thought-provoking conversations, Robin and her guests seek to improve your relationship skills, expand your knowledge, and give you the tools to help your kids make the most out of their lives. Now, here's your host, Robin LaCrosse. Hey everyone, welcome to Holistic Sex Ed Radio. I'm your host, Robin LaCrosse, and today I am so excited to bring to you John Riddle. I have been a follower of his work for years and years, like 25 years. He wrote this book called Eve's Herbs, and it's all about like how the ancients used herbal contraceptives and how plants were used to regulate fertility. And I've personally find this topic fascinating. And so I'm super excited to bring him to all of you today. So John is a retired professor from the University of North Carolina. He's the author of eight books, primarily on the history of medicine, but also on Roman and medieval history. He's written two books on the history of abortion and contraception from ancient times to Roe versus Wade. The thesis was that pre-modern women had effective drugs to control pregnancy. In other words, that pre-modern women had birth control. At one point in his career, he took on a major project of identifying and describing all of the manuscripts of Dioscorides, the famous Roman medical writer, and one of John's favorite sources of information from that time. John's specialty is to decipher the ancient text interpret their contents by introducing medicine, pharmacy, and chemistry into historical studies to answer the underlying question, did these ancient remedies work? This has been described as John's most original achievement and one that will undoubtedly be his most enduring contributions. In my conversation with John, I decided to let the professor do his thing and teach. So I just step back and let John do his thing. So please enjoy the interview. It was my real pleasure to have this conversation with him. Hey, John, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here, Robin. You know, I've been a fan of your work for, I don't know, 25 years or so. I first got introduced to you through an article that you wrote about, I believe it was Wild Carrot Seed. And it kind of opened up a whole window into like this whole another world of what people were doing in ancient times and sometimes not so ancient times to manage their fertility. And I'd love just to kind of know like what got you started in all of this. Cause I know this has been like, you know, the direction that your life's work has taken you in. Well, I was started out in ancient medieval history and my dissertation was in the history of medicine and pharmacy. And, but I was, got a project to do the manuscripts of Dioscorides, so I went all over Europe several times to the manuscript collections, but I was doing the kind of typical things that a historian does. Uh, big thing was herbals, medieval herbals. And, I was invited to give a section of a course in medical school at Duke University, which was 
nearby where I was. And I was showing some slides of uh, the medieval herbal and was telling what the, about the plant and what it was supposed to be doing. And a student in the class, first of all, good class, they would ask questions and they would take notes, which my students don't always do. And I said that this herb did X, Y, and Z medicinally. And he said, yes, but does it work? And I said, well, historians don't deal with that question. And he took his pen and slammed it down on his notebook and folded his hands. And some several other students did the same thing. And I said, you know, that was a reasonable question, and I should deal with it. And so I started to take in what the ancient texts were. By the way, as far as medieval manuscripts, ancient texts, and so forth, approximately one-third of them would say a political uh, and about one-third a medical. So, I mean, it's a super abundance. And whenever I would pick up a manuscript uh, in London or the Vatican or wherever, uh, sometimes I was seeing this for the first time anybody looked at it in centuries. So I started digging with the question, uh, did these ancient recipes work? And a couple of people had looked at what they had said about contraceptives and abortifacients, and also uh, sexual stimulants. Uh, and they said, well, these things could not have possibly worked. Well, trying to research that question, a Australian veterinarian wrote a piece in the middle of World War II, I think it was in 1944, in which he was dealing with uh, ovulation failures of sheep. And he pinned it down that they were eating a particular clover. And that would cause a reduced fertility. And I said, and what he noted that what that plant did was stimulate production of sexual hormones. Now the two main ones are estrogen and progesterone. And so found out that plants do have a way of stimulating or inhibiting those hormones. And so I got back to the question about what about all of these recipes? What were the plants that they were using? So I'd have to deal with the chemistry of the plant and also with medical anthropology because anthropologists would find people in different sections of the world that were taking things as either the contraceptives or abortifacients. And so if I could connect the medical literature with anthropological literature with the historical. And so that was the connection. And I don't know where that student was that slammed his pencil down on the table there. That's a great, a great story. And, you know, it's, it's a valid question. Does this work? And I've been fascinated with the whole idea of 
plants being able to influence fertility and you're and you're alluding to that and how they affect like the hormones whether they you know promote or inhibit the hormones and stuff and so you know i'm really curious like as you were doing your research what were you finding like what were the plants that that were most exciting to you well you better have a very comfortable chair if i answer that question <laughs> I do. <laughs> Let me start sort of good. <laughs> Let's start at the sort of the beginning. In Sumerian literature, uh, well, actually, this was not a literature, but a vase. A vase to Inanna, uh, the goddess of love. And she was the chief goddess, or god, really, of the Sumerians. And the story of her was she was a young uh, premenstrual girl living with the other gods in her family, but she was unhappy. And so she said she was going to go somewhere different. She wanted to go to the underworld. Her family tried to talk her out of doing it, but she was going anyway. So the gods let her go to the underworld, but they took another god sort of to be her escort. That god was the god of knowledge. And so she goes to the underworld. She's not find happiness there. She's sort of a shade. She had no personality. Then a woman, and the text is clear, it's generic woman, not a name to it, gave her the halupa tree, and she was happy. She planted it by the Euphrates River, and it flourished, and she found her happiness. She found her sexuality, and she became a full woman with pleasure. And, uh, well, the story goes on how that halupa tree was taken by a Anzu bird that made it home in the boughs of the tree. There's a snake who could not be charmed in the roots and the dark made witch uh, in the bough of the tree, I mean, in the trunk of the tree. And so she couldn't, she lost her power that the tree had given her. And so she tried various ways to get rid of the snake and the Anzu bird and the dark maid. And she finally got Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh drove them out. So she had her power, her sexuality restored. And then she goes back to the upper world. And there she took a place as one of the chief goddesses and then the chief goddess. And so, well, question, well, what's that halupa tree? Text didn't make anything clear, but you see pictures of Inanna and she's bordered by pomegranates. And so, hmm, then I got to thinking, well, what is a close parallel to that story? And that's the story of Genesis. Now, that vase telling us that story uh, was found in a votative offering near the uh, city of Uruk. 
and Genesis is not written till oh, roughly seventh century before our era. So there's almost 2,000 years separating Genesis from that Sumerian story. And I got to thinking, well, Adam and Eve. Now, don't say apple because it wasn't an apple. Why do I know that? Apples don't grow in uh, Palestine. It's not the Hebrew word for apple. The Hebrew word means golden colored fruit. What was the halupa tree? It was the pomegranate. And the pomegranate appears in Sumerian and other recipes to, uh, well, let's see if I can't read one. Got a text. Yeah. Syrian prescription. Seed of a lupu plant for a woman who does not want to get pregnant. And it was really the, the plum granite which Adam and Eve ate, remember, from the tree of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So you got that connection. And this caused them to, having disobeyed God, to uh, be doomed to, to work and pain. And you look at the modern pharmaceutical literature, especially the ancient Middle East, and in the works ascribed to Hippocrates, the pomegranate was given as a contraceptive. And occasionally also to cause a miscarriage or an abortion. The reason is it is very high in the stimulation of estrogen. And so uh, that was the, the beginning. And from there I went into other plants, well, like one of the foremost, especially in Greece, all, all the way down to our own era, is pennyroyal. Mm -hmm. Now, it was probably used more than pomegranate and gradually begins to replace in pomegranate. Now, that was a question I kept asking. Well, oh, well first of all, they still use the pomegranate in Iran and in uh, India as a contraceptive, as a fertility agent. And the pictures that show Anana in the bottom of that vase, she had grains of wheat or grain mm -hmm. and pomegranates. They bordered her pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the pictures of Demeter, who's the counterpart in mythology, has her holding grain and pomegranates in her hand. Mm -hmm. She was the counterpart. I happened to have in class a student from Iran, and she says, well, on a bride's wedding day, her mother always gives her a pomegranate. Mm -hmm. So I got the two. Now, we still throw grain on the bride and groom. That's for fertility. But the pomegranate was for its control. And so a woman has in her hand 
the means for fertility and for its control. Now that is still in our weddings and the symbolism at least still there in Iran. Interesting. And so, well, and you said they were using the seeds of the pomegranate. So when you open the pomegranate, the seeds are like they're surrounded by that red fleshy stuff. And that's what they were eating? It's the pulp around the seed. Okay. Uh, so the, the highest, on the inside of the contact. rind. Yeah, yeah, inside the rind. Okay, I see. Or the, mm-hmm. or the white part of the rind, not the, okay. not the outer surface. I see. Uh-huh. And, but it is probably less uh, estrogenic today than it was what well, we were talking about 6,000 years before us. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or at least 5,000 years. Because my, my hypothesis, and I can't prove this one, so have no footnotes, but that horticultural development of the pomegranate as a food tended to weed out or change the chemistry for taste. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think the chemistry of the modern pomegranate is the same as it was in remote antiquity. Mm -hmm. It makes sense, yeah, because I know that they they do – cultivate yeah. things with the mind of flavor and, you know, getting out traits. That's they don't right. Want. Well, mm-hmm. we do that with a lot. Well, for instance, the tomato mm-hmm. was poisonous, but we bred it. So it is very, very important to our diet now. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely essential in Italy. Uh, one of the plants that probably had the reputation has been most powerful, uh, was called sulfium. Mm-hmm. And the colonists from Corinth planted a colony in what is now Libya. By the way, the word Libya in Greek uh, applied to the whole continent of Africa. And the continent and the city, it was called Serene, and it did not flourish very well until they found the sulfium plant growing on the hillsides facing the Mediterranean. And it was, they discovered that it was a very effective contraceptive. And there's a vase uh, showing the pictures of them taking the plant and loading it for shipment. Now, it shipped to Greece and elsewhere for high cost. Aristophanes, the Greek playwright in the 5th century, says, can you remember when you could, Sophium did not cost so much? And by the time of uh, Pliny, it was said that Sophium was uh, worth its weight in gold. Now, what was happening was it was so harvested that it was becoming increasingly rare and then eventually extinct. The last mention of sulfium is in the fourth century when a Christian bishop uh, received a letter from his brother who had a farm near Sereni and said he had found the plant. So it was still existed by the fourth century. Uh, Aristophanes uses the plant sometimes in his, uh, in his plays, 
And uh, Ovid talks about it. And I'm trying to think, well, in anyway, I'll think of his name in a moment. He said that, and this is in the second century of our era, that, uh, oh, juvenile, sorry, how can I forget juvenile? He said it is a sure fire contraceptive. And so it, the poems of Catullus uh, said to a poem to his girlfriend, lesbia, how many kisses can I give you? One, two, many, thousand kisses more. I can give you as many kisses as there are grains of sand on Silphium shores. So I can give, make love to you so long as we have Silphium. This mm -hmm. was in his uh, poetry. Mm -hmm. now, Do you think that was like the most effective herbal contraceptive that that you came of that maybe existed in antiquity? What do you think? Well, in antiquity, they said it was the best. Yeah. Now, of course, it didn't survive. Of course, you're going to say, how do I know it's chemistry? By related species. Mm -hmm. The species of ferula and other species of ferula was used for that purpose, and we know their chemistry. Their, their chemistry was not as good as a plant in uh, serenium. They had tried to uh, transplant it. There had been many attempts to the Greeks and the Syria and so forth. But any attempt to transplant the plant in antiquity failed. So it can only grow in that microclimate area. Now, they used other things, probably... Mm, from at least the Greeks on through to the present, for that matter, mm -hmm. is pennyroyal. Mm -hmm. And pennyroyal was a, uh, could be a contraceptive, but it also could be an early term abortifacient. And it was used in patent medicines for women uh, for that purpose. Uh, through the 19th century. And a word about that, because when I talk about this subject, some modern American women read that pennyroyal will cause an abortion. Mm -hmm. And some of them got sick, including one young lady in Colorado who died. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem was she went to the pharmacy and said, I want some pennyroyal. Pennyroyal was sold by pharmacists for one purpose. It keeps fleas away. No other purpose. Mm -hmm. She got the concentrated oil, and so what she was taking was the equivalent of more than 7,000 cups of pennyroyal tea. The ancient used as a key as a tea. Uh, and so one can't read these ancient texts and always know exactly what to uh, 
what to do. Yeah, exactly. How to properly prepare and utilize the herb safely. You have to know how to harvest the plant, what part of the plant, what time of the season to do it, Mm -hmm. uh, the concentration, how it's to be administered. For instance, some medicinal compounds are soluble only in alcohol, others only in latex or water. Mm -hmm. And so how would women know this? by their mothers or midwives and so forth telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a transmission of knowledge that up until some pharmacist or medical doctor learned what patients were doing and wrote it down that we get the information. Artemisia was a plant of the goddess Artemis, and it has a number of effects on fertility and doing the same thing. It can promote or it can uh, inhibit uh, both contraception and abortion. Oh, I should have talked about uh, quantity. Uh, Serenus, I'm going back to Sylphium. Serenus, a gynecological writer in the second century of our era, said that it was sufficient to take a chick pea size dose of the sap of Sylphium for one month, either to prevent pregnancy or to uh, eliminate one already present. So that is one of the times where we get absolutely the uh, right size. Okay, artemisium can have various effects, one of which is spermatogenesis. It can reduce spermatogenesis uh, in a male. And Artemis was the goddess of love and uh, antiquity. And, well, this story. The Greek women had a festival, Thesmophoria, that once a year they went to an island in the Aegean and only women could be on that island and participate in their observances. And the men had to stay home. The women prepared beds of uh, this plant, which I'm sure they put it in their potteries, like some women today will cook, if they were leaving, will cook up a few meals for their husbands to keep in the refrigerator. What that plant did was it it prevents a uh, an erection, and so it's the opposite of uh, Viagra. So they're basically making sure that their men don't cheat while they're away. Yeah, <laughs> I gave a lecture to a on a women's college once, and talking about various herbs and a multiple uh, variety. And I mentioned 
Vitex, which was the most important uh, plant for prevention of uh, male libido and spermatogenesis. And some after the lecture, several students came up to the podium and said, where can we find this plant? And I said, well, it's over in the botanical gardens. What I didn't tell them is it was at the steps of the science building where we had our talk. <laughs> uh, this is the kind of thing I don't want people to say, well, I'm going to go out and get some of this. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have to know where, like I said, uh, all of the details. It's not an easy, it's, uh, it's knowledge that's long held and carried down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's very important to know how to use the herbs properly. For example, with the pennyroyal, using the essential oil can be a fatal choice, as you know, the lady right. in Colorado discovered, and I know people have hurt themselves doing that sort of thing in an effort to, to dislodge a unwanted pregnancy. And so I think it's really important that people are educated and, you know, if they are going to try to use yeah. things like this to work with somebody who knows how to use plants that well, way. Talking about these plants, one on one mentioned to get back to ancient mythology and down to our own time, the mandrake plant. Uh, Center very much important in Harry Potter. You remember that? Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. the plant, something like Sylphium, in that it grew in isolation in forest areas, and it had to have a certain kind of soil, and it resisted cultivation. Uh, now we're able to do it, but not on any massive scale. Mm -hmm. And the mandrake appears in uh, Egyptian mythology. Mm -hmm. uh, the god uh, Ra had decided that human beings, whom he, had, he and other gods had created, no longer were mindful of him and were being disobedient and terrible people. And he said it was a mistake to have uh, created these people. And so he sent uh, Haptor, uh, the god, the hench woman, and on earth to slay all human beings. And she did. She got really into the act, was slaying people right and left, until he said, well, maybe some of them were good. Maybe I shouldn't kill all of them. I just killed a few. But he had a trouble because he had given the order to the Heptor, and a god can't rescind an order because that would be an admission that a god had made mistakes. And by definition, gods don't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So he had to produce a miracle. He gave some mandrake to a beer brewer on the Elephantine Island, which is near Aswan, in the Nile. And he brewed gallons and gallons of beer with mandrake. By the way, mandrake was a 
an additive to beer so long as they had it. And he, this brewer with the mandrake, delivered 7,000 big jars of mandrake beer and poured it on the ground around Haptor. So when she thought she was waiting in blood, she was waiting in mandrake beer. Some splashed in her mouth, she drank more, and then she became too drunk to finish killing all people. Isn't that a much better story <laughs> of, than the uh, Noah story? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, anyway, the mandrake was used. Uh, it was also called the, in this thing, the mistress of the vagina. The mandrake was? Yes. In Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And, well, well, let's see. Queen and, Ansel- did, and what did it do? Like, so what was the purpose that they were using it for? The mandrake was actually, it is very close to atropine, is uh, nervous, and it would be uh, a stimulation of the uh, sex hormones. Uh, and it was never used that much as a fertility agent simply because it's so rare. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. A common person could not uh, use it. Yeah. And, you know, the story of it was, it's called a mandrake because it's a, looks like, the root looks like a carrot. Mm-hmm. And two big roots come off near the top and then two at the bottom. And so it looks like a human being. Right, it's got little and arms and legs. They would, they would, um, draw pictures, but they would draw pictures of it looking like a human being. Since it was so expensive, supposition is that herbalists who wanted to protect their supply would pull up a mandrake, carve it to make it look like a man with a face and genitals, then replant it, and then show it to others. And it was said that anybody who pulled it up would die. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, even if people found it in the forest, they were afraid to harvest it. Mm -hmm. That's one way to to preserve it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. So Queen Anne's Lace you were talking about? What's that? I said you mentioned Queen Anne's Lace. Oh, Queen Anne's Lace, yeah. Uh, Queen Anne's Lace was used uh, as a post-cortal interceptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're going to get into a problem. Is this a, a contraceptive and abortifacient? What it does is it inhibits the implantation. And it's the seeds that have this effect. And it was fairly well used. You know the plant is, I don't know about Arizona, but I suspect it grows wild in Arizona. It grows wild almost everywhere. 
I haven't seen it growing here down in the hot spots, but I bet in the mountains it would grow. Yeah, I bet it would. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a novelist in Texas that just wrote a book called Queen Anne's Lace. And she uses Queen Anne's Lace uh, effect as a contraceptive, uh, as a plot in the book. And she footnotes my work. Mm -hmm. I've never had a novel that footnoted me before. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and she knew, she knows a lot about Queen Anne's Lace. The interesting thing to me was I didn't find that much in the literature in modern times. And I had dinner with an old friend who taught at Appalachian State in the North Carolina Appalachian Mountains. And his wife was a public health nurse. And he asked me, what are you doing? And I told him what my work was. And she said, oh, the nurse, I have some of my clients who take a plant like that. And I said, is it the seed? She said, yes. And I take it, I said, they take it and right after intercourse? She said, yes. How did you know? And I said, I didn't. But you just gave me the first indication I had this practice in the last two centuries. And subsequently found out that uh, in the mountains of North Carolina and Virginia, uh, they use it regularly. One woman client became pregnant because she went with her husband on one of his trips and she forgot her mason jar of Queen Anne's lace seeds. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, so that practice is still going on. Yeah, and I know that there's um, some herbalists who are familiar with it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Robin Rose Bennett's work, but she uh, does a lot with wild carrot seeds. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you Yes, uh, I am. I am uh -huh. uh, familiar with it. She's on the shelf right here behind me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Her words. And let's see. I don't know. I could just go on and on. Uh, let me mention juniper because juniper has uh, got a different uh, action. It causes uterine tissue to uh, go into spasms. And if you get the juniper juice from the berries close to the uterus, the uterus uh, becomes, let us say, active. So it prevents implantation. They used it either as a pessary or as an ointment to put on a penis before, uh, before intercourse. Mm -hmm. And it was used quite a bit uh, in antiquity, in the Middle Ages. And now let's jump up to the 16th century. Mm -hmm. Germany, German towns. Some of the German towns were losing population. The businessmen, the town fathers, the burghers, associated that with women who were preventing births. 
So the women were doing something that caused the prosperity of the town to diminish. And I found out that what it was, women were using juniper. So they outlawed the possession, the growing and the possession of juniper. And I asked a number of historians of pharmacy, can you think of any period in history and any culture where there was public law that prohibited a substance? And no one could. Uh, so this may have been the first uh, secular law that prevented a substance from being in possession. Mm-hmm. And a traveler in those regions of Germany uh, decades afterwards said, you come into these villages and the juniper bushes have been cut and have been harvested. So it did not prevent their use. And can I speak about the modern sure. one moment? Sure. I went to a, a person's home in Los Angeles. He was a, a curator of early pharmaceutical uh, packages. Mm-hmm. And he had in his backyard, big backyard, uh, several old drug stores. And I spent some time in there looking around, and there would be this section uh, of things, and I would look and see what they were, and I could say, these can only have been for birth control. And let me read you some of the names. Uh, Olson's vegetable syrup, French lunar pills, Hooper's female pills, Faria's Catholic pills, Dr. Peter's French renovating pills, Hardy's women pills, Hardy's women's friends, Colchester, Pennyroyal, and Tansy pills. The Pennyroyal again, Tansy is also used. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kinchester's Pennyroyal pills, Dr. Monroe's French periodical pills, and just plain female monthly pills. The most important medicine, patent medicine, for women in the 19th century was Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound. Have you heard of it? I have. Okay. Well, Lydia Pinkham and, gosh, Massachusetts or Connecticut, I forgot. Uh, She had this compound she sold as a tonic for women. And the herbs that she had in it, by the way, we do not know precisely what the original formula was because she kept it secret, Uh, was used by women for many, many decades. Then came the 1890s. I think Lydia died until about 1892 or something like that. But her compound, by the way, is still being sold, but with a different uh, uh, formula. Mm-hmm. 
and I don't know what the modern formula does, by the way. Mm-hmm. But women could use it either to promote fertility or, again, to prevent it. It depends upon the dose, where they, uh, when they took it in the menstrual cycle, and so forth. Well, the, when the church and secular authorities in the 19th century decide that what women are doing is what they should not be doing, and that is preventing uh, birth. And so there came an any number of laws. The big law that also affected Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound was the law that was essay 1907, which was the basis of the federal government licensing drugs. And there was a great outcry from women. And it was said that there was a big letter writing uh, campaign. And probably uh, it was the first congressional onslaught of constituents writing on a particular issue. And it was so strong that the federal government didn't absolutely prohibit these. Now, states did. States went through any all kind of uh, laws to prevent these pills, like one law in Iowa: no person shall sell, offer, or expose for sale, deliver, give away, or have in his possession with intent to sell, except upon the original written prescription of a license physician, dentist, or veterinarian, any cotton root. Uh, maybe I can talk about cotton root. Ergo, which are fungus, all of tansy, all of uh, juniper, and derivatives of any said law. But the trouble was, when the lawmakers were men, they didn't know exactly what to name. And so Louisiana had the law that it is against the law to manufacture, sell, or advocate any drug exclusively for women. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> well, they didn't do it, but if you look through the advertisements, uh, little small advertisements, in uh, 19th century, early 20th century uh, newspapers. They had these pills. Mm-hmm. And by the way, uh, one newspaper in Dunn, North Carolina, uh, and one issue had three types of pennyroyal pills. Uh, each one of them sold for four cents a box. And was that considered expensive back then? Like, I, I don't have a sense of, like, you know, what well, the value of four cents was. It would, let's put it this way. It would be about the equivalent of buying a quarter of a milk now. Mm-hmm. I better, let me mention Rue. Okay. 
Ruta, it was using salads. It, to me, has a sort of a bitter taste, and I wouldn't want it in my salads. But it is a contraceptive. Mm-hmm. And I got to thinking. A woman who did not want to be fertile could put rue in a salad that she and her husband were eating. It would be affecting her, but it would not affect him, and he wouldn't know why she was doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, on rue, Shakespeare mentions it several times. And in Hamlet, uh, Ophelia said of some plants that she has, and it says, you will take it for a different reason. That's not exactly Shakespeare's word. Mm -hmm. But the supposition is, and some Shakespeare's uh, experts say this, that Ophelia was pregnant. And that's why she would be taking it. Mm, interesting. I've heard, too, that they used it a lot in Mexico, like it's a herb that's commonly used in Mexico, like yeah. to regulate fertility. Have you heard that, yeah. too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another line in Aristophanes' play where a woman comes on stage and she is, now remember, he's a comic playwright. Mm-hmm. She's in a very, very exaggerated state of pregnancy, and she's from Boeotia. And the man says to her, "Why, you are from Boeotia, where the penny royal grows in the fields?" <laughs> now the audience would have been predominantly male, mm-hmm. and they would have laughed. They had to have known what Aristophanes was illusion he was right. making. Because mm-hmm. no playwright would put a line in that he knew his audience wouldn't know what was happening. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, I find it really fascinating, like the story of these plants are being told on vases and in plays and in poems and, and that sort of thing. In some cases, um, stamped onto coins. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I was just, I would love to like, just, I don't know, own like a copy of some of those vases, like replicas of those vases would be so cool. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Uh-huh. it would be. Uh-huh. You know yeah. what, you know what plant the state of Israel or Judea had on its coins as Which a symbol? One? Which one? Pomegranate. Oh, okay. Pomegranate. I didn't know that. I know yeah. um, that the... Um, I always pronounce it wrong. The um, the the uh, sylphium. Did I say it right? Yeah, sylphium was on. Sylphium the was on. Pontus. And Serena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I have fantasies like you know we have the the gem show that comes through Tucson you know twice a year and I go there and I ask yeah. the coin dealers, have you ever seen one of these? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll have to get a replica. I did see uh, what, see a copy of you, the corn coins you in know the these museum. Things. What's your background, Robin? Is it mine yeah i have i started out as being somebody who is interested in fertility um learning about my cycle and got into herbs and so i've been kind of a a background herbalist and just have 
continue to explore the, you know, the connections between women, female bodies, herbs. Ah, oh, that's good. That stuff. Yeah, so I've had interest in it for 25 years or so. Well, that's good. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty important. And it's available in any continent but Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And for areas where people are very, very poor, they could relearn the information so that they could learn the plants in their area that were free that mm-hmm. they could use for their benefits. I think it's information, I think, is, is wonderful. Knowledge is wonderful. And I think that being able to rediscover how to use some of these plants and then maybe pass that information down onto our children would be really a wonderful thing. I think so too. The first book I did on this was uh, on Dioscorides, the herbalist. And as a matter of conscience, I put in the front a whole one page with one statement. No one reading this should take any of these herbs uh, without uh, advice. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of the reviewers said, has anyone else ever written on ancient science and have put a precaution like that in? Probably not. Probably not, yeah. Yeah, but you know, women who do not want to be pregnant and can't get abortion through other methods do look for alternative ways and it's always been that way uh, yes it has yeah mm-hmm. well witchcraft is another thing but i i am too tired to talk about it if we ever talk <laughs> again let me say that the extermination of witches who tended to be mostly identified if anything, as midwives, Mm -hmm. had a lot to do with what I was telling you about with Juniper. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because people associated witches as preventing childbirth. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm too tired to go through this now. I would love to have you back to talk about this more. Okay. Yeah, if you're you're into it, I'd love to have you back on the show. Try not to mess up my email the way I did today. <laughs> no, you're good. You're totally good. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show, John. And I would love to have you back and talk about well, this stuff some more. Well, be glad to do that, Robin. All righty. Thank you so much. Keep cool and keep safe. I will. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Holistic Sex Ed Radio. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us today. While these conversations may be difficult at times, the rewards are well worth it. We have the power to change the world by what we teach our kids. Join host Robin LaCrosse next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thought-provoking conversation. Thank you and have a beautiful day.
If you don't want to be pregnant, one of the most nerve-wracking experiences is a late period. Lying in bed, wondering, worrying, waiting for menstruation to arrive, praying that your period will come. It's very stressful. Even though many of us are taught about menstruation, most of us don't have a deep understanding of how it works or what the body is doing. This results in increased stress, decreased sexual desire, sleepless nights, and sometimes unwanted pregnancy. What would it be like if every young woman grew up understanding her body to this degree? It could change the world. It could eliminate unintended pregnancy. It could help girls feel excited about and empowered by their monthly flow rather than ashamed and embarrassed. Since most of us don't get this kind of education while growing up, I put together a special free training called Understanding the Female Body and Cycle. Just go to holisticsexedradio.com to get access today.